from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up last week during the confirmation hearing of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, one of the often repeated objections to the confirmation was that the Senate needed to be focused on coronavirus relief for the American people, not rushing through a Supreme Court justice confirmation. Well, tomorrow, Senate Republicans are going to call their bluff with yet another coronavirus relief measure. Indiana Senator Mike Braun is here on that in just a moment, and the latest on the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And are are there any uh, anything are there any things we should be paying attention to as it pertains to the emails found on Hunter Biden's hard drive? And if so, why do they matter? Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Andy McCarthy has answers for us. And I told you this was happening: the silver lining to the coronavirus. Parents are getting a look at what their children are being taught, so much so that one investigative journalist who simply asked parents to send him what they had discovered was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with the information and actually started a website to aggregate all of the material. Luke Rosiak is here with more. You won't want to miss that interview. And speaking of the public school agenda, the governor of Oregon, acting as a heavy for the public schools, is using the coronavirus as an excuse, get this, to prevent private schools, to shut private schools down, religious schools, while allowing the public schools to be open. That's right. Well, thankfully, with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom, the Christian school is suing. David Cordman, Senior Counsel and VP of Litigation with Alliance Defending Freedom, is here with the details on that case. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is at T. Perkins. And uh, remind you, 14 days to go, Election Day is almost upon us. Uh, and, of course, if you haven't registered, it's too late in most cases. But I hope you are prepared to vote if you haven't already voted. Early voting is taking place in many states. And again, as we've said over and over, I encourage you to uh, to vote in person, if at all po- possible. But we have voter guides available for you. If you'd like to know uh, who's on the ballot in your area, in most cases, we have that information. Some areas, we don't have quite all the data. But if you would like a personalized voter guide, simply text your zip code, your voting zip code, not your mailing zip code, but the zip code you vote in, to 53445, that number 53445, put in your zip code, text it to that number, 53445, and you'll get a link back to your personalized voter guide. All right, as I mentioned last week in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I I don't know if you're watching that or not, but uh, it was really good. It was actually quite good. I thought Judge Barrett did an amazing job. I talked to the chairman of the committee yesterday. I hosted a uh, Zoom call with uh, Senator Graham and pastors in South Carolina, and we discussed it, and he, too, was impressed with her. Well, as this was uh, going on, Judge Barrett, um, you know, during the hearing, there wasn't so much of a focus upon her and her judicial qualifications. It was more about Obamacare, that she was a danger to Obamacare, and the fact that this was... uh, being held, being rushed through instead of focusing on coronavirus relief. Well, tomorrow, Democrats will have the opportunity once again, I might add, to provide the much-needed relief to schools, to the unemployed, and to small businesses. What will they do? 
Well, joining me to talk about this and more, Senate uh, to talk about the Senate Republicans' health care proposal, the Fair Care Act, is U.S. Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. Senator, welcome back to the program. Hey, good to be back on. Okay, let's start first with the uh, $500 billion relief proposal that will be on the floor tomorrow. Will the Democrats support it? Well, if it's any indication from nearly the exact same bill that we voted on uh, right before we left for two weeks, and that had, I think, all 53 Republicans voting for it and not one Republic or Democrat voting for it. So I would uh, expect a repeat performance on it. Um, you hit it on the head. It would direct uh, in a targeted way using some of the unspent funds as well that uh, we had left over from the CARES Act for those groups most impacted by it that uh, have not gotten back on their feet, and that would be small businesses, uh, individuals employed by them, uh, schools, uh, places that really could use the help. But uh, basically, Speaker Pelosi, I think Chuck Schumer will do what she uh, decides to do in the House, uh, has tried to play footsie with this like she did back uh, when we did the original CARES Act. Uh, she delayed that uh, bill's passage for three and a half days from a Sunday, I think, to a Wednesday evening for basically the same stuff that's packed into the HEROES Act, and that is mostly in the $1.8 to $2 trillion package that uh, she says she's working with the White House on. And I'm really disappointed that the White House is even wanting to do it for the fact that it would be giving them almost everything she wants when what we really need is a quick targeted relief bill similar to what we're going to vote on tomorrow. Now, uh, just as a reminder to um, our listeners, the HEROES Act, which passed the House and has been sitting over in the Senate, a $2.2 trillion relief package that bailed out many poorly managed cities and states, blue ones, I might add, um, and not to mention promoting the marijuana industry and a host of other items. Um, going back to this targeted $500 billion bill, which, by the way, Senator Braun, let me just say this. I, I commend the Republicans in the Senate for being fiscally responsible here, knowing that we need to do something, but we don't need to just throw money unnecessarily at problems to say we did something. I, I tell you what, that, that takes some political courage right now coming up on an election. It does, and it's a kind of political will that is mostly absent in D.C. when it comes to votes similar to this. Uh, it would even be more political will if, in fact, it had a you know, chance of passing. So uh, sometimes I'm disappointed where we as Republicans uh, could hold the line when it involves stuff that we really like, and that's why we generally don't budget anymore, and we do continuing resolutions for the lack of having that political will. We run trillion-dollar structural deficits, of which about two-thirds of it is driven by um, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, where we've over promised and added so many additional benefits into it, have not adjusted some of the realities of how those programs were built originally, that's real lack of political will. So here, uh, sadly, uh, this is due to an outlier, uh, something that kind of blindsided the best economy that I've witnessed and was a part of it 37 years before I resigned as CEO of my company. And, uh, yeah, we need more of that. This would do just that. And uh, I don't think Pelosi wants to give Trump 
any win either of any dimension. And that's why it's a little beguiling in terms of how she's approached this whole thing, because I don't think it was done with sincerity. Well, before I move to the the Fair Care Act, I just want to be yeah. uh, perfectly clear here. The issues that were raised in the Judiciary Committee last week about needing to address the hurting uh, people of America as a result of the economic downturn of the coronavirus, the bill on the Senate floor tomorrow would do that in a targeted fashion. It does it uh, specifically aimed at just that, and it doesn't have the extraneous kind of uh, wish list of uh, – uh, the political agenda that um, I think Pelosi is pushing mostly from pressure from her left side. And, uh, no, this is targeted, would do all of that. So it would be yep. an easy vote to get something out the door. All right. I just want uh, our listeners yep. to hear that, uh, that that, that uh, issue raised last week is being answered with a vote on the floor of the Senate tomorrow. Okay, let's go to this other issue that was brought up in the Judiciary Committee last week, and it's all about how uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett would take away people's uh, health care. Now, that in and of itself is a whole different issue about judicial activism. But I want to talk about the Republicans have a response to the Obamacare, the ACA, which has driven up cost, putting health care in some cases, quality health care beyond the reach of some people, taking away personal choices, interaction with doctors. The Republicans do have a proposal to replace that. We do, and I'm proud to be the author of it uh, in the Senate, uh, Bruce Westerman in the House. And it takes basically uh, the tenets of Obamacare, which, and I believe it too, I did it for my own employees 12 years ago. I don't think anybody should go broke because they get sick or have a bad accident, but not through government. Uh, Government tried that through Obamacare. That was big government big health insurance that was doomed to fail. The only uh, winner out of all that was insurance for a while because it you know, gave them bloated profits and still didn't serve uh, the underserved health care patient well. My bill uh, takes every uh, market-oriented principle, competition, transparency, get rid of the barriers to entry. Our healthcare industry has put so many advantages into code that keeps transparency from being there like we have in any other business. Then you let consumers do the heavy lifting by comparing price and quality. Uh, They're fighting it tooth and nail. So uh, this is a solution that should work if the healthcare lobby uh, wasn't as strong as what it is. And then even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce ends up backing pharma, hospitals, and insurance companies. Even practitioners do not embrace transparency the way they should. So it's either that or it's going to be the Bernie plan. And the Bernie plan could cascade upon us uh, as quickly as two weeks if the winds blow south severely for us. I hope that isn't the case. Um, we will then be dealing uh, without having the levers and the tools to get true health care reform across the finish line, will be mostly at the mercy because I believe the Dems will get rid of the legislative filibuster in the process of trying to do a lot of things that have been on their agenda. And then I tell your listeners to buckle up because it'll take the best economy we've had in decades, along with adding even more government spending on misguided plans to address climate, health care, both bona fide issues. Republicans are generally slow-footed, slow to engage, but we need to be quicker 
uh, at the discussion and bring conservative free market principles into the solution sphere, and that's what we failed to do, and that's why we're in kind of a pickle. Well, Senator Brun, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. as we've if we've gotten to this point with this intermingling of a government program, let's just take health care as one example, the Obamacare, yeah. it's made it harder for the free market to provide the services and give patients the choice and the relationship with their doctor. If we go the direction you're talking about, if Bernie, we get a Bernie-type plan, is there any way to ever see that redone? I mean, that could be the end of, of quality health care in America. As I see well, it. whenever you look at the Great Society programs, you look at Social Security itself, you look at Medicare, Medicaid, have they grown or have they shrunk? Uh, obviously, they've grown uh, immensely over time, even, even to the point where they can implode because actuarially we put too much pressure on those programs. So, no, this could be the start of where there is not the point of return, and uh, I'm worried about that. That's why two weeks, it means a lot to get out there and vote. You're absolutely uh, right. Senator Braun, thanks so much for uh, joining us today, and uh, thank you for uh, taking up the mantle on the health care for the American people. You're very welcome. It's good to be on your show. All right. To find out more about the Republican alternative, which is market-based focuses on the transparency aspect, maybe, meaning putting you in control of your health care like anything else. Now go to the website, TonyPerkins.com, and uh, follow the links over to uh, Senator Brun's uh, website. Okay, coming up next, we'll talk about the significance of uh, Hunter Biden's emails with former Assistant U.S. Attorney Andy McCarthy. That's next. Don't go away. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Hey, Matt. 
Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So glad you are with us. Hey, let me give you a website. Lots of resources, election-related, that can help you do a comparison between the party platforms and accomplishments of the Trump administration, all that they've done. In fact, a lot of people just don't know. Of course, you listen to this program, so you know what they've done. Uh, but others do not. And there's a resource you can share with them. Go to PrayVoteStand, PrayVoteStand.org. It's all listed right there. Also, if you'd like a, a voter guide, text your zip code to 53445. That number again, 53445. Just put in your voting zip code and you'll get a uh, voter's guide. All right. After four years of playing pin the scandal on the president, news outlets, social media platforms, and Democratic leaders are unsurprisingly bearing the latest story about Hunter Biden's shady business dealings connected with the vice president in Ukraine. The problem is Joe Biden in his is implicated in this scandal and no one seems to be batting an eye. Why the double standard? Joining me now to talk about this is former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Andy McCarthy. Andy, welcome back to Washington Watch. Tony, great to be with you. Okay, first off, just because the news hasn't really covered this, social media has shut down the story. Tell our listeners what's going on with Hunter Biden and his connections with Ukraine and the vice president. Well, there's a lot going on with Hunter Biden, and Ukraine may only be one threat of it, Tony. There's a, there looks in just a few days as things have developed, there's a Chinese angle, a Russian angle, and a Kazakhstan angle, too. So uh, Hunter's got a lot going on. But the main thing that the New York Post uh, broke a few days ago in a story that the media doesn't want to cover, and I think the way they've um, uh, basically tried to suppress it has has actually backfired in the sense that it's created as much uh, interest in it uh, as might otherwise have happened. Um, But in a nutshell, um, Biden Hunter Biden, uh, who had no experience in the energy sector, uh, once Joe Biden was made uh, President Obama's point person for Ukraine policy uh, in 2014, uh, Burisma, which is an important energy company and suspected of all kinds of corruption uh, in Ukraine, which is a very corrupt country, uh, Hunter Biden was brought on to Charisma's 
board of directors, uh, even though, again, he doesn't really have any uh, experience in that sector. They paid him uh, tens of thousands of dollars uh, per month, um, and he appears to have arranged a, a meeting for a Burisma executive <clears throat> with Vice President Biden, uh, after which, a few months after which, uh, Biden famously pressured the Ukrainian government to fire a prosecutor who was believed to have been uh, investigating Burisma. Um, and what he used to kind of as leverage was U.S. foreign aid to Ukraine. Yeah, the, the kind of thing you get impeached for, I used to hear. Um, but that's right. There was a remember when that, when President Trump got impeached, we were talking about four hundred million dollars of uh, defense aid. This was a billion dollars in aid uh, to Ukraine. And what Vice President Biden basically told them was that if this prosecutor was not uh, terminated, uh, they would not get the money. And, uh, you know, he, he's bragged about actually doing that. And they fired the prosecutor to get the money. So we're talking about corruption here. We're talking about something you said that, that has led to uh, allegations of which have led to impeachment in other situations. Um, what's been the response? Has Joe Biden answered to this? Well, what they've tried to do in the Democrat media complex is uh, dissuade people from paying any attention to the reporting, uh, particularly that which was uh, spearheaded by the New York Post, which whose account on Twitter is still uh, locked, as far as I understand, because Twitter didn't want them <clears throat> disseminating the story. So, um, you know, what's happened at this point is they're trying to get people to focus on um, the possibility, they say, that the information, most of this information comes from a laptop that's believed to have been Hunter Biden's. Um, there's claims that the laptop's been hacked. The laptop hasn't been hacked. Biden uh, evidently left it with a repair shop in Delaware uh, and authorize them to fix it. So it's obviously not uh, hacked information. Uh, he abandoned it, uh, which is not surprising because he's an, kind of an erratic guy who has um, uh, admitted himself that he's got, uh, you know, he's had uh, narcotics problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other angle that they're trying to run is that maybe it's Russian disinformation because when Rudy Giuliani, who was the president's former uh, who was the president's private lawyer. I always think of Rudy as former because he was my former boss. So, um, uh. But uh, he's, uh, uh, when Rudy was in Ukraine investigating what went on with the, the Bidens there, uh, he was evidently dealing with people who at least some people claim uh, had ties to the Kremlin. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't see what it has to do with emails. Let me ask you this question. Based upon this information the public is just getting from these, uh, you know, supposed emails, could this kind of information been behind what President Trump was actually doing in his negotiations with Ukraine to try to get them to come clean on this? Well, it's clear that President Trump was asking the president of Ukraine to look into the to what Biden was up to in Ukraine. 
And I think it was always clear that there was uh, there was funky stuff going on there. Um, you know, you can quibble over uh, you know, should he have been asking the Ukrainians to do that or not, but there was obviously something to look at. Right. Well, I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire, and there seems to be a lot of it here. Um, there's a whole other aspect to this that we're not going to have time to get into, and that is how social media is responding to this and the censorship that has just gone haywire on the social media platforms. Is that going to continue very quickly? Uh, I, I sure hope not, but I don't see any way that it's going to stop in the next two weeks. Yeah, well, it's something Congress needs to take up or something we need to look at on the other side of this election. Andy McCarthy, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thank you, Tony. All right, folks, uh, don't go away. We're coming back with more Washington Watch next. Uh, the, maybe the silver lining in the coronavirus is parents are actually seeing what their kids are being taught. That's next. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? In this important season for our nation, it is imperative for Christians to pray. While we have a responsibility to vote for biblical values and stand for truth, our priority should always be to seek the Lord first. Each week until the election, FRC and FRC Action will host a special Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to equip you to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth. We'll have experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders join us for these half-hour programs that will help you see through the fog that's been created by the biased lenses of the mainstream media. While you're there, be sure to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge and make a commitment to pray for our nation, vote biblical values, and stand for truth during this 2020 election season. To watch the broadcasts and to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. All right, it's no secret that the public school system doesn't want parents to know what is going on within the walls of the classroom in many jurisdictions. School systems in California ask kids about gender identity, but tell them they don't need to speak to their parents about what they're being taught or exposed to. The schools have shifted to teaching ideals rather rather than facts in history. But what are those ideals? 
And, and should teachers be sowing seeds of discord between children and their parents? Join me now to talk about his investigative reporting and what it's uncovered about what children are learning in our public schools is Luke Rosiak, investigative reporter and uh, host of a new website, whatarethelearning.com. Luke, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let me just ask you this. What got you started on this? I wrote some stories in 2019 about uh, school issues where special interest groups were pushing busing and um, opposing uh, honors classes and things like that along the lines, uh, along with reasoning that it wasn't what they call equitable. And this struck me as a pretty serious thing. I mean, if we're going to say there's no such thing as kids working hard and doing well on their math tests, uh, it doesn't lead to good things for the country. We've got 60 million kids in the public schools, and those are going to be future voters and future uh, workers. And so I realized that the school systems are probably the most important thing that the government does, but it also doesn't get a whole lot of attention from regular parents, and I wanted to change that. So you started seeing some of this stuff, um, and then as the coronavirus hit and parents started having to pay attention to what their kids were being taught, you asked parents to share that information with you. Is that correct? I'm asking them now through this website, whatarethelearning.com. I call it WokeyLeaks as a nickname because a lot of this stuff is, you know, that woke uh, ideological stuff creeping into the schools. But it didn't start with me asking for people. After I wrote those several stories, uh, I was flooded with comments and actually cries for help from parents who felt overwhelmed. They didn't know where to turn. And any time they tried to uh, get involved, the school systems were giving them a runaround. And so my premise was simple, that if an authority figure is telling our kids something is a fact, we have a right to see it. And so with this website, you you can browse, you can go down to your school district and see what others have uploaded there as far as lesson plans and curriculum and policies. And if you've experienced, if your kid comes home with something you think is crazy, you can upload a PDF or a link to the school district website or whatever, um, because it's almost you've got to see it with your own eyes. The school districts won't come clean. They'll, they'll dress it up in, you know, buzzwords and euphemisms. And when you see this stuff, it's really shocking. It's stuff that almost no one in the country believes. But uh, if the teachers keep having their way, fast forward 10 years, and, you know, there could be a sizable portion of America that actually believes this stuff. Now, now Luke, let me ask you this. You're an investigative reporter, but were you surprised at the volume of the information you received and how left-leaning it is? I was floored by it. Um, you know, I come from the world of Washington, investigative reporting and politics. And in Washington, if you work for the federal government, you know that you can't use your federal position or your government pay position to engage in politicking uh, for obvious reasons. That means if a politician, if some party were to win power, they could use the government's $4 trillion budget essentially as campaign funds. And then they become dictators, and you never, you know, the other party has no chance. You just can't do it. There's a strict separation of political funds and government funds. And the schools don't seem to care about that. They are um, kind of overtly teaching kids uh, squarely Democratic, but actually even further to the left of of, uh, mainstream Democrats' positions. And they don't don't even bat an eye at it. And, um, you know, I always kind of thought being in, I guess, the Washington bubble – you focus on the federal government is the most important, but I think that what's happening in the local governments, what you have is national activist groups that have embedded and, and provided resources and influence on the 13,000 
little school districts across the country. And so some of the most radical stuff in America right now isn't happening out of Washington. It's happening out of our local governments. And people don't know how to, to do that. How do you lobby? How do you push back? Let me ask you this before I ask you to answer that question, how they push back. But did you uncover a deliberate effort on behalf of some of these districts to conceal this information from parents? Uh, You routinely see them um, kind of using euphemisms and denying freedom of information requests. And a lot of times they'll just delete stuff when when it's embarrassing. I live in Fairfax, Virginia, and they did a teacher training, and they called it professional development, where the teachers were said, were told, we've got to get rid of white supremacy culture in our schools. And, okay, white supremacy, that sounds bad. But then they went on to define what that meant, and it said white supremacy includes the worship of the written word and the trait of perfectionism. So we had teachers telling kids not to try their hardest and not to learn to read. And when this was understandably ridiculed, they just kind of deleted it from online. But it doesn't change what they really think and what they're doing. And so that's kind of what worries me most is they do backtrack. They do respond to embarrassment. But if the same people are in charge and we know what they really think, uh, there could be all kinds of things that they're doing behind the scenes that uh, we, we may never get wind of. Uh, Luke, we're going to have to get you back on to talk more about this. But very quickly, can parents push back? Is there a way for them to push back? Yeah, I mean, you've got to go to school board meetings, be vocal, uh, be persistent, uh, and, you know, upload your stuff on whataretheylearning.com and check out what other parents have done. And ultimately, parents need to run for school board because it sounds like dog catcher, but it's actually a really important position. Good good, uh, good recommendation. I agree with you 100%. Uh, Luke, thanks so much for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll encourage people to visit your website and put information on there. Thank you. All right, Luke Rosiak, uh, good stuff there. Whatarethelearning.com. I'll have a link to that at TonyPerkins.com. Whatarethelearning.com. All right, coming up next, uh, the Oregon governor discriminating against religious schools. That's next with ADF. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, 
America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. Welcome back. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Let me give you that uh, resource site for everything related to voting. PrayVoteStand.org. Pray means you need to pray. We need to be praying in the last two weeks. Vote. You need to be voting. And you need to stand. We need to stand regardless for truth. So there are a number of resources at that website available for you. There is a platform comparison between the two parties, if you you know think, oh, I don't really think there's a big difference between the two parties, you're wrong. Uh, there's a huge difference. It's huge. Never been more stark in terms of the comparison between the two parties. That document is there. Also a link to a, a quick video that you can sit around on social media that points that out. There's the accomplishments of the Trump administration, which the media does not want you to know about. In fact, in some polling I'm going to be talking about later in the week that uh, we did with George Barna, that's one of the big issues, uh, that uh, many, many conservative-leaning voters just don't know what all this administration has done on the life issue. In fact, I've, uh, again, I, I gave you this number earlier, but it's a great resource for you. Uh, you can text the word actions, actions, plural, to 53445, in a multi-page document, which is very easy, it's PDF, you can send it around on social media, let your friends see it, your family who are maybe ambivalent about this election. The word actions, text it to 53445, and I'll give you a comprehensive list of what this administration has done on faith, family, and freedom, religious liberty, life, so many things. Uh, you need to know what's going on and share that information. We're in the home stretch of this election, which is... One of the most important in the history of our country. Probably the only one more important was the 1860 election back when the nation was divided over the issue of slavery and moving toward a civil war. Okay. A Christian school has filed a lawsuit against Oregon Governor Kate Brown over school reopening policy. Now, Brown's order, get this, listen, listen carefully, threatens private schools with 30 days jail time 
and $1,250 in fines for reopening in-person instruction. But it gets better, or worse, however you want to look at it. But public schools of identical size in the same county are able to resume in-person classes. Now, why might that be? Well, as we heard in the last segment, public schools are pushing the school's agenda. And what's the antidote? What's the, the count, what can counter it? Homeschool, public schools. And by the way, by the way, I'm not, this is, this is what the governor herself has acknowledged. Governor Brown is, uh, I would say, is biased. She has identified herself openly, her own words, not some, someone else's assigning to her, that she's bisexual. Only governor in the nation. So does she have a liberal, liberal orientation that she once promoted through the public school system, therefore she's giving them favor? I don't know. Certainly looks that way to me. Well, joining me now to talk about this is David Cortman, Senior Counsel and Vice President of U.S. Litigation with Alliance Defending Fe- Freedom, who is representing this Christian school in the litigation. Uh, David, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me on. Okay, David, what can you tell us about the lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, it's another one of those instances that we've been hearing about over the last six months, unfortunately, where there's just stark government overreach and favoritism. So the entire summer, private schools were told they're going to be allowed to open, uh, make sure they do, you know, health guidelines, CDC guidelines. So they spend all this money, they rehire their staff, uh, they get everything ready. And then at the last minute, they're told, oh, by the way, you can't open, and even our client, who's a small Christian school of about 50 students, but we're going to allow exception for public schools. So in the same county, you can go to a small public school, but you can't go to a small private school. You can't do that. You can't Under the Constitution, you can't. That's called discrimination, is it not? I mean, that's on its face. If you're going to say a private school cannot open, but a public school of the same size, same geographic location can, there's something wrong with that picture. Well, there is, because even during these these times, um, the Constitution doesn't get suspended. And what's interesting about it is you'll hear so much about, well, you know, the health of students and science. Well, Corona has no idea whether a student is sitting in a chair in a public school or sitting in a chair in a private school. So it's not about science. It's not about health. It's about favoritism. It's about making sure, as one of the, the governor's liaison said, we don't want a mass exodus going out of public schools into private schools. Well, wait a minute. Let's unpack that statement for just a moment. Uh, To me, that on itself, just that statement alone would suggest discriminatory behavior. Well, it does, because it's not based on a legitimate government reason to say, well, we want to make sure that everybody's safe and we want to make sure we're taking care of health issues, because it has nothing to do with it when you say, well, boy, we don't want students leaving the public schools and then, God forbid, you know, and I use that intentionally, go into private schools. And, and that's the problem here. We see that all over the country where governors and, and other political bodies are making these determinations not based on science, not based on health, based on you know, favoring public schools based on the economy, like in Nevada, where they're allowed the casinos open, but not the churches. I mean, we're seeing that all over the country, unfortunately. So, David Cortman, this clearly is is wrong. It is uh, unconstitutional. If anything, religious entities are to get preferential treatment, certainly not treatment that would be uh, treat them in a 
um, secondary category, as we're seeing here, and as you mentioned, the churches in Nevada. But nothing can be done about this unless these entities take legal action, which is where Alliance Defending Freedom comes in, right? Well, that's right. And the problem is, is how does a small school, a small church, you know, 50 students go up against, you know, the state of Oregon? Um, it's just impossible to do. So we've stepped in. Interestingly, this is the second time we've sued the state. Um, last time they limited religious gatherings and churches to 25 people, but they allowed gyms and restaurants uh, to, to fill up to, to, to capacity. And so this is something where organizations like ours have to take a stand and say, look, we're going to fight for the church. We're going to fight for the religious school because they won't be able to do it for themselves because you can't go up against, uh, the, you know, the fisc of a state. Well, well, David, let me put a plug in there right now, just a moment for ADF and uh, Mike Ferris, a good friend of mine. Uh, our families long supported groups like ADF because I know how critical they are in this process because David's absolutely right. You get a small Christian school that, you know, the only way they're, they're able to barely operate is by the tuition that the parents scrapped, scraped together. Um, and they, they pay the teachers less than what they make in the public schools because they care about their kids. And so when this comes up, they certainly don't have the resources to do it. And Alliance Defending Freedom steps in because, number one, they want to help that school. But number two is there's an underlying principle here of religious freedom that has to be protected. So, folks, this is where you can play a part in supporting uh, organizations uh, like this. Now, l- let me ask you this, David. Um, what do you anticipate happening here? Do you, do you think the governor is going to back down, knowing that she clearly is outside the constitutional authority to do what she's doing? You know, I'm a little surprised that they haven't already. Uh, we filed the lawsuit a couple of days ago, and I was expecting the first response to be, hey, you know, we're right. Um, you know, you're right, we'll, we'll make sure we fix this, we'll allow the school to open. But no, we, we've seen appearances by the state, but, but none of that happening. So we're actually going to file, we're preparing right now, an emergency motion with the court saying, while you look at the case, we're asking you to allow this private school to open in the meantime, because it's not just about the finances, although that can cripple the school. It's about these kids going back in person, being able to learn. Um, we have, you know, economically disadvantaged parents who can't stay home with the kids for the online learning. They have to go to work, so it doesn't allow them to get educated. Um, so there's a lot of other problems in addition to corona, obviously, that are happening to our students when they're not in school. Now, if the governor were to back down, does that end the the lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, if the if the governor backs down, allows the school to open, and we can come to an agreement on all the legal issues, uh, the answer is yes. And that's what we're expecting. We went to the state first and said, "Hey, can we make this happen?" Uh, the problem is, is that the most recent executive order actually allows the public schools to open and does not allow the private schools to open, even though it originally did. Um, So this was done intentionally. But if they come and say, look, we've made a mistake, we'll fix it, uh, that's certainly what we're looking for. Well, and we hope that it's not just a temporary fix, but uh, going forward they will not discriminate against religious institutions, which seems to be a propensity of the left uh, to, to do. Uh, David Cortman, thanks so much for taking time to join us today. And as always, uh, appreciate the great work Alliance Defending Freedom does. Okay, thank you, Tony. All right, uh, David Cortman, Senior Counsel and uh, Vice President of U.S. Litigation with Alliance Defending Freedom. And, of course, they're involved in that uh, case we, we've uh, we've talked about before over in Nevada with the church there in uh, Dayton Valley. 
where the governor there has said you can meet in casinos um, and it's 50 percent capacity. But in churches, I think it's the number. I think they upped the number to 250. Um, but you can't have 50 percent of your capacity. You could have a, a church auditorium that seats 2000, but you couldn't have a thousand people. You can only have two, uh, 250. So discriminatory. This, folks, is one of the big issues that is at stake in this election. If you, if you look at what's happening across the country, states like California, where it's still restricting churches, Nevada, Oregon, places where there is a double standard applied to religious institutions. Uh, Virginia actually was one until the governor backed down because some churches took action. But when you look at these states, predominantly they are democratically led states. What does that mean? Well, it, it can mean a couple of things. One, I think there's a propensity of the left to, to be overreaching. I mean, big government. They think they, can, they think they know better than parents about how their kids are to be raised. They think they know better uh, than individuals on how to take care of their own health and their overreaching and their restrictive actions over this coronavirus. This really, really exposed the two competing ideologies behind the two major parties. Now, I would say even some on the right got it wrong, too, pressured, I think, mostly by the media. But we've never responded. We've talked about this many times on the program with the medical experts and others. We've never responded to a health epidemic as our pandemic as we have under this. We panicked. And even Republicans allowed themselves to be pushed into policies which were bad, bad for the economy bad for the emotional and psychological health of people, bad for the country. And what it's done, though, it's, it's empowered many of these leftist Democratic governors and mayors to exercise more authority and control over the lives of people. And there are some, I'm not going to say all, uh, some just are intoxicated with the power and the authority that has been granted to them through the, you know, the, 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 the fear of the coronavirus. But others are using it to intentionally squash the effects of religious entities, whether it be schools, in this case in Oregon, I have no doubt. Uh, I mean, my, I should say, uh, let me rephrase that. I strongly believe that the governor of Oregon, Governor Brown, is acting out of a anti-religious bias. And she would rather have children indoctrinated by the godless, corrupting culture of the public schools. Um, just the way I see it. Others, like Governor Newsom in California, would prefer the churches stay shut so that their influence is limited, especially prior to an election. Now, just watch. Just watch. And if I'm wrong, I'll say I'm wrong. 
but I don't think I will be. After the election, most of this will go away, that everything will be operating pretty much as normal. Now, if I'm wrong, I'll say it, but I don't think that I am. Because this, the, uh, the medical science is not supporting what's happening. Folks, you need to vote. You need to vote for those who, one, who, number one, uphold the Constitution and the freedoms that protects, the, the freedoms that it protects. Those fundamental freedoms that you and I have, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom to assemble. We need to support those candidates. But you need to vote. And I, I, I cannot tell you in strong enough terms that this is a critical election and we need to be voting. So please, prayerfully vote and stand for truth. All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us. Again, check out the website, prayvotestand.org. Lots of resources there for you that you can use to share with friends, family, church members to help them make the right decision going into what is one of the most important elections in the history of not just our lives, but this country. Again, prayvotestand.org. All right, folks, until next time, I leave you once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, where he says in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, he says, when you've, uh, when you've taken your stand, when you've prayed, when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.